Lord, thank you so much for gathering us together here this morning. I pray that you'd be with the preaching and the teaching of your word. Lord, I pray that it would change our hearts to conform more to the image of your son. I pray that we would leave here changed with the hearing. I pray that you'd be with all that goes on with the singing and the worship and what goes down, down downstairs. I pray that you'd be with all these children and that we would praise you this morning in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles today, and let's go to Colossians and chapter 3. Colossians, the third chapter. As you turn there, we will get ready to quote our theme verse together which are actually three verses, 16, 17, and 18 of chapter 1. And this has set the tone for all of our messages in the book of Colossians. And the theme is Jesus first. So let's start in Colossians 1 and 16 through 18. Let's try this together as we do each week. Ready? If you begin with me. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that he might have the preeminent. So we've been looking at what it means to live lives where Jesus is preeminent, where he is first. And we've looked at different aspects of that. And today we come to the, uh, in the third chapter, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. And we're going to look at what it means to see in our lives a Jesus first transformation, a Jesus first transformation. Now I want you to see uh, in verse number 5, we're going to read the, these verses 5 through 11, and then we'll work our way back through them. But look at Colossians 3, look at verse 5, what it begins with. It says, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Now, I want you to mark a couple of things. First of all, that word mortify, you probably don't use that very often in your everyday speech. So the word literally means put to death. So if you want to write that down, mortify means put to death. And then I want you to notice the therefore. And this is going to be significant in just a, a few minutes. The therefore statement is significant. It's going to come up again. It's obviously, it's obviously bringing us back to what we learned earlier. And what we learned earlier was all about the, the risen life. And that was in, in the first four verses of the chapter. Last week we spoke about... Spoke about our identity in Christ. And because of our identity in Christ, because of who we are in Jesus, because of the spiritual reality, now we're giving some practical steps to take. And so first of all, in verse 5, he says, put to death your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake, or in other words, because of these things, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. 
in the which, or in those things that were just listed, ye also walked some time. There was a time in your life when you lived in them, that you walked, you, you exhibited those behaviors. Verse 8, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Don't lie to each other. That's pretty straightforward Christian advice there in verse number nine, right? Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free. Say this concluding statement with me, ready? But Christ is all and in all. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we continue. Lord, please help us to understand the scriptures. Lord, we need, we need the Holy Spirit. We need him to meet with us this morning, to speak to us through the word. We can read the Bible, we can preach about the Bible, but Holy Spirit, if you are not moving in our hearts, teaching us and making this applicable to our lives, Lord, then we're not going to get anything today. And we want to receive from you. We want to, to, to receive the word that you have for us. And we're incapable of understanding on our own, and I am incapable of, of accomplishing that. I cannot... I, I realize that I cannot change minds and change hearts. Only you can do that. So please move among us today. We're humble. We recognize that we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we speak about transformation, I think you saw that there were some practical things, even a list of things that were revealed to us in this text. Now, we're talking about, if you, if you kind of picked up the whole theme of the passage, you're going to, you'd notice that he's speaking about the fact that we're a new creation in Christ. And so, really the direction of the whole, this whole section of the chapter, and this is part one this week, and next week will be part two, but the whole direction is that we are to live out the reality of our new creation in Christ. Now, that is a, that's a choice that we have to make. Last week we talked about, and, and you can actually back up to chapter 3, verse 1. If you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. In verse number 3, look at verse number 3 was a key verse last week. Colossians 3, 3. For ye are, and he's speaking to Christians, ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. And so that was the spiritual reality that everything about you before Jesus, because of the cross, everything about our lives before Jesus died. Paul would speak about this in Romans chapter 6, about the old man and the new man, the old person and the new person in Christ. It's hard to believe sometimes that we literally have, the Bible teaches that we as Christians, we literally have 
a new person inside of us that has been renewed in Christ. It's hard for us to, to, to really believe that sometimes because we still struggle with old temptations and desires, don't we? We still have parts of our lives that resonate with who we used to be. And so you'll find this theme throughout the New Testament that we, it starts with simply believing, just simply accepting the truth of God's word that he told us that because of the power of the cross, the old me is dead. And I do not have to live a slave to my old desires. I don't have to live a slave to my old behaviors because that identity is done. So now I'm free. I'm free to live by the power of Jesus. And sometimes, I actually, I actually spoke a little bit about this last week because obviously that's what the first verses are about. And one of my sisters sent a, 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 something to me, like a, it was a song and then a statement from a pastor who literally was saying this very thing, like, you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like you're so different, but you have to believe that you've been transformed. You have to believe that there's a new power residing in you. You have to believe that the Holy Spirit is with you. And so then as you face those choices, if you start by just believing that God wants to change your life, it will happen. But it starts with believing. In Romans 6, Paul would say you have to reckon. In other words, you have to realize that you're different than you used to be. And then when you act in faith, then you'll, you'll experience a new power transforming your behaviors. Well, that's what this, is all, this chapter is going to be all about. So there's living as new creatures in Jesus. Notice on the bottom of the uh, first page of your handout today that we are a new creation in the Spirit. You have both a spiritual existence and a physical existence. Is that a newsflash to anybody? Or you're like, yeah, I, I guess I kind of understand that. But think about it for a minute. As a Christian, you are both a physical, physical person and a spiritual person. Now, your spirit has been completely transformed. That part of your salvation is complete. It's done. But has your body been fully saved yet? Yes or no? If I were to ask you, are you saved this morning? Well, you would say, I hope if you know Christ, you would say what? You would say, yes, I'm saved. And when you say that, you're thinking in terms of your eternal destiny, right? You're thinking of the fact that someday you know because of Christ that you will stand before God and you'll never face judgment for your sins because you've been rescued, you've been saved. But if we broke it down into the nitty-gritty details today, the fact is this. Right now, right now, your spirit is fully saved. You have a new nature in Christ. But is your body fully saved? No. When will that happen? At the what? What was that? At the resurrection. At the resurrection, you will receive a new body. A glorified body. And we always think, what do we usually think about that new body? We think about the, the, the physical things, right? Because it's a body. We think about the fact that, well, yes, that body is never going to get sick. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That that body is never going to grow old. In fact, people wonder, what, what age will we be when we receive a new body? Well, I, I tend to 
I tend to think that it, we will be like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were created as mature adults in, I would say, in the prime of their lives. Now, whatever age you consider your prime to be, I'm just going to let that lie there right now. I won't say what that is. But the point is, we think often that, well, we have a, we'll have a new physical existence. And that's a wonderful thing about Christianity, by the way. Because one of the sorrows of life is the breakdown of our bodies. It just is. It's one of the things that we struggle to deal with, that these bodies cannot do what they once were capable of doing. Because the human body is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's an amazing thing. But it breaks down. And that's a sorrow that we deal with in life. And so we look forward to that day when we'll have the ideal physical existence. Heaven is not just floating around in clouds playing harps. Heaven is a wonderful physical existence where everything that we enjoyed about this life, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to have a completely fresh existence every single day. But there's another part of the new body that maybe we don't always think about. And that is this, the new body will not have the temptations to sin that this body has. Think about all of the wonderful physical desires we've been given. Are you thankful that your body desires good food? It's a wonderful physical experience, yet it comes with it the temptation to overindulgence, doesn't it? And that wonderful gift of appetite that God has given us has been corrupted because the body has fallen. And so that wonderful desire to eat and enjoy taste, it becomes sometimes self-destructive, doesn't it? You can take that with almost, well, I would say you could take that with every physical desire. You have desires to enjoy recreation, right? And enjoy purchasing things to fulfill physical needs. That is corrupted and self-destructive. All these desires we have, food, feelings of pleasure, sexuality. These are wonderful gifts of God, but because the body is corrupt, it takes the good gifts of God and makes them self-destructive. That's the, that's the heart of sin. Sin destroys. The devil's effect in the world was to take a wonderful creation and corrupt it. It's a cursed existence. Yet, in the new heaven, in the new earth, and in the resurrection, we'll have bodies that will, that will enjoy the, the... And we don't quite understand what the new heaven and new earth physical pleasures will be. We know that there's food. We know that, that, that Jesus said that sexuality is done away with. Like the, we will be like the angels, so we won't have that part of our being. But we will have other physical pleasures that we enjoy. But they will be without... They will be without the proclivity and the tendency to sin. But right now, you don't have that. You don't have it, okay? That part of you isn't saved yet. It, you need to ask God to save your body every single day. Every single day, you need to say, God... And in fact, Paul puts it this way. He said, who will save me from the body of this death? He says that in Romans, I think it's chapter 7. The good that I want to do, I don't do it. And what I don't want to be doing, guess what I find myself doing? 
those things. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? Because there's a spirit in me that wants to please God, but there's a body that wants to serve itself. It's a theme of Paul's writing. It's actually a theme in John's writing too. I'll I'll reference that a little bit later. So notice the two things here. Back to the text. There's a new creation in the spirit. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Just as Jesus is in heaven, guess what? Spiritually, you are. That's your new identity. But then there's a new behavior that needs to take place in my body because in verse number five, mortify therefore your members which are where? I'm in verse five now. Mortify therefore your members which are where? On the earth. Well, all of me is on the earth. Actually, not really. There's a heavenly part of you, the spiritual part of you. But then there's part of you that just is just left here. It's stuck here. Your members. It, members literally means your physical parts. Your, and members, both not just physical parts, but emotional parts, desires, feelings, all of that. So in Romans, let me give you a reference. In Romans 8.5, this is another place that Paul speaks of it. For they that are after the flesh. In other words, their nature is a physical nature. If you have a physical nature, naturally people who are physical, their concern is what? If, you're primarily, if all you are is physical, your, your concerns are what? Physical. But those who are spiritual beings, their concerns can be what? Spiritual. So, back to the text then. Let's look. I've got just three simple statements on the back of your handout. And we'll walk through these right now as, as the scriptures explain to us. Number one. Number one. My new nature, my new nature brings a new way of living. My new nature brings a new way of living. Verse number five again. Mortify what? Well, before there, I want you to see that key word, mortify what? Therefore, therefore. And I know it's a, it's, it's a bit of a trite expression, but it's, it does help to say whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should look and see what it's there for. All right, sorry. That is helpful, though, because it's a little reminder that, that don't just, because sometimes we're just not used to reading this kind of language and um, and so we're just like, oh, I'm mortified, therefore. The, the, the therefore is linking us back to this whole point in the first few verses that we're risen with Christ, that our life is, that, that we're dead, and our life is hid with Christ in God, and that when Christ shall appear, we're going to appear with him in glory. So what he's saying is, out of the reality of your new nature, out of the understanding that everything is new and spiritual because of Christ, because of that, here's some practical things to do. So you'll see the structure of the chapter. It's really interesting, and and this kind of sets you up for next week as well. So the structure of the chapter is verses 1 through 4, you're a new person in Christ. Verses 5 through 11, because, therefore, because you're a new person in Christ, therefore, you need to stop. You need to mortify. You need to put off. This is the theme of verses 5, 11. But then skip down with me to verse number 12 and look at the structure in verse number 12. The very first three words, put on what? Therefore. It's a very neat structure. There's like one paragraph that talks about what you stop doing. 
And there's another paragraph that talks about what you what? Start doing. This is what you shouldn't be doing because of who you are in Christ. And this is what you should be doing because of who you are in Christ. So today, with the rest of the time, I'm going to tell you to stop doing some things. Hopefully, you've already stopped doing them. But you're a Christian. Amen? You're a believer. If you're a Christian, say amen. Okay? If you have a new nature, say amen. Isn't it cool that all the people that said amen the first time, you have to say amen the second time? Amen. Because we just keep this going, right? All right? When you say amen, you're saying, I agree with that. I'm a Christian. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm a Christian. I have a new nature. It's, it's just, you have it. Because of that, behave like a Christian, he says. So what we see is positive and negative Christian living. And what you have are some lists. Oh, I couldn't even get that out. I added a couple extra S's, but it's just lists. There's some lists here. Do people today, even in Christian circles, like lists of do's and don'ts? In fact, as soon as you say there's a list, oh, I can't do it. As soon as you say there are several items <laughs> of things you should do and things you shouldn't do, there's another L word that automatically comes to Christianized people's mind. When you talk about lists, they think of what? Law or legalism, right? That's what they say. Oh, now you're going to get all legalistic with lists. The Christian life is not reduced to a set of do's and don'ts. That's, if you reduce your Christian life to this is what I do and this is what I don't do, you don't have much of a Christian life. You just live by a you're just You're a legalist, literally. You live by laws. However, if you're in a loving relationship, would you expect there to be a list of things you should and shouldn't do? I have a loving relationship with my wife. So with that comes a set of expectations for how I should believe. Now, if you said, tell me about your marriage. Tell me about your marriage. And I said, well, let me tell you about my marriage. I can't spend a lot of alone time with other women. I have to come home every day. You know, I'm, I'm expected to go to work and share my money. Am I giving you reasonable expectations of any marriage? Yes or no? Yeah. Am I defining my marriage? You'd be like, that's a marriage? You would expect me to talk about, oh, my wife and I, we've been together for 17 years. And we've, we're raising four children together. And these are the things we like to do together. But at the same time, there's an accompanying list of expectations with the marriage. That's how you should think of your Christian life. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to Jesus. So any Christian that starts the explanation of their Christian life with, well, I'm a Christian. I do this. I don't do this. I do this. I don't do this. I go to church, you know, 17 times a week. I pray 300 times a day. I do all, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, that doesn't sound like a very joyful existence. No, it's I love the Lord. He saved me. He changed me. He gave me new desires. Oh, so tell me about how you live your life then. 
Well, that's, that's, yeah, I've made some choices because I belong to Christ. There's expectations. So, these are positive and negatives of Christian living. So, what I would say is embrace the list in a healthy way. Embrace it out of your love for Christ. He says, number two, so, so first of all, if my new nature brings a new way of living, number two, I must kill my old behaviors and feelings. Now, I, I was thinking, how do I want to, you probably are like, are like, you know, you see all my points on here, but I do think about how I want to word my points in the message, believe it or not. And so I worded the second point a couple of days, a, way, a couple of ways. And first I, I was like, well, I, um, uh, my old behaviors and feelings must be put to death. And that was kind of like in a passive voice. I was like, wait a minute, let me just take verse number five and put it in the simplest, most straightforward way in the active voice of what he's saying to do. He's literally saying this, hey, kill your old way of living. Kill it. Kill it. Kill is a pretty strong word, wouldn't you say? Okay? Killing is reserved for the most extreme of circumstances. Self-defense. War. Capital punishment. Killing is not something that's a, typically a positive in, in the world. So he uses very strong language. Kill, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. If you knew, if you knew, dads, husbands, if you knew that there was an intruder at the door who was trying to break into your house and had every intent of killing your family, of destroying everything that was dear and precious to you, you would go to wherever you have that weapon stored. You would, without any reservation, you would take action to neutralize that threat. Any red-blooded men in here that would say amen to that? That that's what you would do. I read an article by a well-known Christian author one time. This is a tangent. You'll just have to put up with it. I read an article one time by a well-known Christian author who said, how should a Christian respond if someone invaded their home? And he spoke all theoretical about whether or not you should take the life or not or whatever. It is your duty as a husband, as a father, to protect the lives of your family. It's an easy decision. I'm thankful for a country that still gives us the right to do that. Tangent over. I've offended somebody, but it's okay. Killing is reserved for the most extreme circumstances. But if you knew, it, not just dads, but how about any, any mama bears in here? You know what I'm talking about, right? If you knew that someone was going to harm your child, you would take action. Well, what Paul is saying here is there are things that will destroy your life. There are things that will ruin your life. There are things that are the enemies of... And so this is not, well, let's negotiate. 
when these things come, when these spiritual attacks come, it's not, well, let's negotiate. Let's reason. He says, no, there are certain things in the Christian life, they're non-negotiable behaviors. They're non-negotiable attitudes. When they come in, you take that spiritual 357 and you fire off around and you put it to death. We all doing okay with that this morning, right? You put it to death. You kill it. What are they? Well, let's look now because now it hits us in our culture. He says, these members upon the earth, you need to kill them. What are they? First of all, he says fornication. That's sexual sin. That is sexual behavior. It's the word pornea in the Greek. Fornication is pornea, from which we derive the English word pornography. But fornication refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That is a non-negotiable of the Christian life. Christians have been one of the defining factors of, of the Christian life from the beginning is sexual fidelity in marriage. It was in the days of the Greek and Roman Empire when the scriptures were written, it was countercultural then. In fact, among the Greeks and the Romans, sexuality was very permissive. We think we live in a sexually permissive culture today. It was maybe more so in the Greco-Roman days. And so Christians were to be marked by a distinction when it comes to their sexuality. And so they're called to live differently. Christians just don't do these things. It's interesting, it's not just in the actions, but if you look at all the following words here, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, these actually are all related to fornication. Because as Jesus said, sexual sin is not just physical, but it also happens mentally, visually, imaginatively. And so if you're a Christian and you're like, well, you know, I, I just, you know, hey, hey, Ethan, it's 2023 and people just don't live this way anymore. Historically, people have never lived this way. Historically, this is how Christians live. Why? Why? Well, because the, the, the male-female relationship goes back to creation, that we have been created distinctively as male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. The Apostle Paul explains that that is a picture of the union of Christ and the church. So anything else, anything short of committed male-female marriage where sex is displayed really is an, is an attack against the creative order of humanity. It's destructive. And so you say, well, you might be in a dating relationship, and you might say something, well, how far is too far, and how, what kind of things should I be involved in, and what kinds of things should I, what I shouldn't? Well, Paul put it this way to Timothy. He said, flee fornication. He says, run away from it. Don't have anything to do with it. 
So I would, I would caution you, any behaviors in your life or practices that could lead you to either, either unclean thoughts or unclean feelings, any entertainment or, or literature, both visual and mental stimulation that would cause you to think in an unclean sexual way or behave in an unclean sexual way, you need to put that to death because it's destructive. Every sin that a man does is outside of his body, Paul would say. But when you commit fornication, you sin against your, your own body, your own self. It's a sin against who God made you to be. And I don't say that to, to, to come crashing down on anybody, but to give warning that you are a child of God. You don't need to live that way. You've been set free from that. So, the, the first section here, you, you've got to kill these old behaviors. But then he mentions these sexual ones, but then he says in the second part of the verse, not just fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. Interesting that covetousness is, is the next thing he mentions, right? Covetousness, the desire to accumulate for myself, to accumulate what other people have. I just have to have this and have that and have this. It's, again, like we begin at the beginning, desires that get all turned in on themselves. Covetousness is really idolatry. You wouldn't, he says, you wouldn't build a, a statue and bow down to it. But all those things that you want and you just have to have, that other people have, he says, those are just basically little idols that you have, that you bow down and you give your life to. Christians are not to be a covetous people. One of the things that will free you from covetousness, by the way, is radical generosity. Radical generosity will free you from covetousness. The understanding that what I have isn't mine, it's the Lord's, and I'm just the conduit through which God's stuff passes. We've got a little joke among some of us in the church where somebody gets a new thing and we joke about it. Oh yeah, that's, it's God's truck or God's, we, we've had God's grill, God's truck. Well, there were some other things. God's motorcycle. Yeah. Right. And it's all the Lord's. That frees you from covetousness because covetousness is a trap. And Christian people are just in, in debt Many Christian people can't be generous because they've got to pay so many debts. These are, these are marks. You are set free in Christ. Don't engage in these destructive lifestyle patterns. Because your old self is dead. And then there's, this, there's another reason, though. If you look at verse number 6 and 7, it's also because when you behave that way, when I behave that way, we are behaving like unbelievers. We're behaving like unbelievers. Verse number six. For which things sake? In other words, because of these things, because of fornication, because of covetousness, God's wrath comes on the children of disobedience. These are the sins that God will judge. You say, you believe in a God of wrath? Absolutely. Because just like you, just like you, if you're a father or a mother, 
would deal in the, most, in the strongest of terms with anything that would destroy your beloved children and your family, God is passionately angry and actively angry against sin that is destroying his beloved creation. That's why he's a God of wrath. Because sin is destroying what he loves so much, which is our souls, which is us. That whole statement, love the sin, or love the sinner and hate the sin. That's the heart of God to say sin is destroying. So if we are, if men and women are resolute in their determination to continue in sin, they are basically saying, rather than being the beloved of God, I will set myself as the enemy of God. You see, when you, in, in fact, listen, when you, let, let me get very specific. When you commit fornication, you are destroying someone else that God loves. You say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm just, it's just me. When you commit fornication, you, that person you, are, you are, are, are sinning with, you are also sinning against. When you view, when you view pornography... You are objectifying and participating in the destruction of a soul, of a young man or woman that God loves. That's a, that is a more, is a convicting way to think about it. If you view that person who has been so objectified, Oh, you are sinning so grievously against them. And God says his wrath is against those kind of behaviors. Because of these things, God's wrath is poured out. I would be careful with any sins as well about covetousness. That, that again, so many people have been, their lives have been destroyed because of our consumption of greed. Are greed to consume. Sin is an, is an attack on all of humanity. Even those sins that people think that are just, you know, it's just me, it doesn't affect anybody else, it does. And God's wrath is against it. So now many people have looked at a verse like this. And they've gotten, and, and many a Christian with a tender conscience has looked at a verse like this. And they've been very afraid. And they say, well, wait a minute. This verse says that because of these things, what is coming? God's wrath. So many people are Christians and they say, oh, what does this mean for me? Then what does this mean for me? If God's wrath is against these things, now, please don't raise your hand, but please don't raise your hand. But how many of you would look and say, oh, my goodness, there's been some covetousness in my life. And I'm a Christian. Or there's been some some fornication either in actions or in thoughts in my life, and, I, and I'm a Christian, does this mean that, that I've lost it, that God's wrath is coming upon me? It doesn't mean that. In fact, it says this, these are the things that cause the wrath of God to come on who? The children of disobedience. If you are in Christ, are you a child of disobedience? You're not. Because verse number seven, 
in the which ye also walked sometime when ye what? He says, that's who you used to be. Before Christ, you, are, you were a child of disobedience. Now you are a Christian. Now you live in the Spirit. So do not behave like people who are still in the flesh. Are you following me there? You're not a child of the flesh. You're a child of God. So live out who you are. Yeah, you used to walk in those things. You used to behave that way. Why? Because that's what your life was. That's what your life used to be. Verse number eight. But now. But now. There's a difference now. Now, if you are interested in studying this on your own, you need to look at, and I wrote these in your handout, so make a note to study them. There's three other passages. Paul explains this four times. Four times Paul gives lists like this and explains that Christians can sometimes behave like non-Christians, but we shouldn't. And if you want to see how neatly these all parallel, you could look at 1 Corinthians 6, you could look at Ephesians 5, and you could look at Galatians 5. I would encourage you to do that later on, to compare these passages. They basically all say the same thing. Hey, the way you're living is the way people who are lost and on their way to hell behave. And so the motivation should be, wow, Christ died for that sin so that the wrath of God, so I could escape the wrath of God. Why should I find pleasure? Why should I find joy in the things Christ died for? Pastor John MacArthur said it this way. He said, Christians should not be entertained by the sins for which Christ died. We should not be entertained by the sins for which Christ died. My new, my new nature brings a new way of living. So I must kill my old behaviors and feelings. And he continues in verse number nine, or verse number eight. But now also put off all these. Now you'll notice that some of these are feelings and some of them are actions. Anger. Wrath. Malice. This largely deals with how you feel about other people. Blasphemy. Filthy communication out of your mouth. That's dirty talk. This is not new to our century. People have always spoken dirty ways and used foul, perverse language. Verse number nine. Don't lie to each other. Seeing or because you have put off the old man with his deeds. With his deeds. Now, if God has convicted your heart this morning, you need to repent as a Christian. If God has convicted your heart and you say, no, there's, there's something in my life. My life is not lining up with who I am in Christ. Do not waste this opportunity. You need to confess that sin and forsake it today. 
Because Christ makes a difference. Now, finally, so if my new nature brings a new way of living and I have to kill my old behaviors and feelings, thirdly now, I must embrace my new nature in Christ. Okay, I said this a little bit at the beginning. Up until now, this, this message could feel like a heavy weight on you. That's called guilt. Guilt is good, by the way. Okay? It can only get you so far, but despite what pop culture says, guilt is a good thing because it deals in our conscience. But guilt with no empowering is destruction. If all I said to you today was, what are you doing as a Christian? How are you acting this way? Why are you doing that? You could leave here defeated. But if we look at the end of the passage, what it says is this. You now have power to not live that way. You have power to change. You have power to be transformed. Will you believe that? Will you believe that you, do not, you are not in bondage to those things? He says this. He says in verse number 10 that you have put on the new man. And notice some descriptions of the new man. The new man, the new person, the new identity in Christ has a new source of knowledge. I've been renewed in knowledge. In not just any knowledge, but knowledge that is after or knowledge that is like the image of him that created him. Who created you a new person? Who made you a new person? Christ did. Jesus did. So now you have the same understanding that Jesus has. You've been given new knowledge, new understanding. In fact, if you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're probably sitting there thinking this. Like, okay. Well, I want to sleep with as many people as I can. I want to get as much stuff as I can. I don't see anything wrong with that. Just because, you know, some, some preacher tells me I shouldn't, or just become some, because some book tells me that's wrong, I just don't believe that. Okay. But if you're in Christ, you'll think very differently about it. If you're in Christ... You'll, you have that knowledge that says, wait a minute. If you're in Christ, it all resonated with you. You're like, yeah, that did have me in bondage. And in fact, the Holy Spirit might be speaking to your heart now and starting to change your thinking. And you may have started listening to this message and been like, oh, I like doing all those things. I'm going to keep doing them. But now you're like starting to see, you know what that is? That's repentance. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who supernaturally speaks to your heart and says, no, you don't really want to continue in sin. It's going to destroy you. There's a better life. There's a better way. Why? That's the renewed knowledge in Christ. That's what only God... See, I can't make anybody a Christian. Nobody can decide to become a Christian. The Holy Spirit has to open our hearts and give us a new understanding. And at that point, he says, will you say yes? He, he's calling all men everywhere to repentance. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He moves in our midst. And he does that with the lost, 
bringing us to Christ, but he also does that with believers. It's a wonderful thing. Don't be like, oh, if I confess that sin, if I changed, oh, the, the devil wants you to think, oh, if I changed, my life would become, become hard and difficult and I'd be guilt-ridden. No, if you said yes to the repentance that God wants to do, you would walk into liberation and freedom. Because there's a new knowledge. My dad would give this illustration. I think other people have before, but you've heard his testimony. Most of you have. If not, my dad's testimony is that he was addicted to alcohol and the use of drugs and, and just things that were just living the life that a lot of people live in the world. And now he's in Christ and he would tell people, you know what? I've heard him say this for shock value. I drink all the beer I want to drink. I smoke all the pot that I want to smoke. You're like, oh, I thought you were a pastor. It's like, yeah, well, there's a new knowledge. There's a new desire. I don't want any of those things. Now, does that mean that the temptation never creeps back into our lives? No. But once we get back in the spirit, we're like, I don't want that. Parts of my flesh might be like, oh, yeah, remember that? That was good. But when I get back in the spirit, I'm like, oh, I don't want that. There's a new knowledge after the image of him that created him. New knowledge. But secondly, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. There's no limitations. There's nothing holding me back. Somebody might say, oh yeah, but you don't know where I came from. Anybody in here resonate with that? You don't know where I came from? And I don't. I mean, a lot of people would say that I lived a, I've lived a pretty privileged life. I can't do anything about that. Sorry, all right? That's my reaction to all that stuff. Sorry. So I cannot resonate with you if, you if you had a difficult childhood. I can't really identify with that. And I don't try to. I'm not going to pretend that I understand what that was like. If you were discriminated against in your life. I, I, I admit, I don't resonate with that. And I try to empathize, but I'll never be able to fully understand that. But can I tell you, we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus, who was in every way tempted the same way we are. He was marginalized. He was persecuted. He was impoverished. He was slandered. He was abused. Ultimately, he was the greatest injustice that has ever been done was committed against our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, he, we, can, we can find hope in verse number 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, free. You see, in the church, they could have been like, well, Paul, this is an easy message for you. You're a Hebrew. You know, you're of the circumcision. He says, listen, in Christ, there is no circumcision. Yeah, but I'm a slave in a Roman household. Anybody in here can resonate with that? Didn't think so. But I'm a slave in a Roman household. And he says, hey, even you can do it. Because in Christ, there's no slave and there's no free. In Christ, there's no very religious and unreligious. There's no educated and uneducated. 
There's, no, there's nothing. The, all of the social distinctions and, and social strata that we think gives us privilege or no privilege, all of that's been eliminated at the cross. Because at the cross, friends, we are all nothing and we are all everything. At the cross, we are all as guilty and vile as the worst. And at the cross, we are all as loved and magnificent as the greatest. There's nothing holding you back from being everything any of us can be in Christ. There's nothing that says that you cannot have the greatest, most liberated, most free Christian experience as the greatest heroes of the faith. Why? Because it's not about who you are. It's not about who I am. It's Christ. He is everything and he is in everyone. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. For each and every one of us, it's Christ. We just say that Christ is all and in all. Even as I was preparing the message, I almost missed the simplicity, and I just changed the word all and it, 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 with a synonym, and it just was more real to me for some reason. Christ is everything, and he's in everyone. He's all, and he's in all of us. So you see, it really begins where it started. And where it started with, this is who you are. You are in Christ. So live like you're in Christ. Put these things out of your life. And next week, we'll see what to put into our lives. But maybe you're, maybe, maybe right now you're just a little unsure what to do. Maybe you've been convicted this morning. Maybe the Holy Spirit has said, you know what? There's covetousness there. There's sexual immorality there. I'm not saying it's going to be like easy to change, but it is simple. The simplicity is this. Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I am finding pleasure in the sins you died for. Please forgive me. The Bible says, speaking to Christians, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Back to my illustration earlier of a marriage. You can, you can, you can, you can sin in a way that damages the relationship. And human relationships aren't always restored, sadly. But we have a Father in heaven who longs for the relationship to be restored, who longs for us to come back. And as much as you feel like you've embarrassed the name of Christ or you've not lived up to who Jesus has called you to be, he is just waiting for you to take one step. Take one step that says, Jesus, I want to come back into the fullness of our relationship. But maybe you're here and you don't have that relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've just lived in your sin and you've never even thought anything about it. Well, this is the way I like to live. This is the way I want to live. Well, there's a judgment for sin. Jesus took the judgment. If you will confess your sin to him and say, Jesus, I repent of my way and I put my faith in you and you alone. The Bible says even the worst sin 
can be forgiven and you can become a child of God. You can leave, you can stop being a child of disobedience and you can become a child of God by simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll change your life. You won't be perfect overnight, but he'll start to change you. So let's, let's make some decisions right now. Let's not waste the message. Let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and let's speak to the Lord. Now, as you bow your head, as you close your eyes, we come to this time of prayer. The first question is, have you received Jesus as your Savior? Has there been a time in your life you can say, yes, I am sure. If not, make that decision right now. If you're not sure you have ever truly become a Christian, the Bible says if you will admit your sin, if you'll believe in Christ, if you'll call on His name, He'll save you. So I'll lead you in a prayer. There's no magic formula to the prayer. It's really the condition of your heart. But if you're ready to make sure your faith is in Christ, you can pray something like this. Say, Dear God, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I live my life my own way. But I believe that you died for my sin. And I believe that you rose from the dead to give me a new life. I turn from my way and I put all of my faith in you and you alone. I'm trusting you, Jesus, to save me. Please save me. Please save me. If you did that for the first time today or you made sure today, would you let us know? Maybe put it on the connection card. Maybe you still have questions and you'd like to talk with somebody. Put that on your, the connection card as well and just leave it in the box on your way out today. I want to pray for you. If you made a decision online or listening to the message, would you send us a private message so we could pray for you? Christians, let's take the rest of these next moments. The piano's going to play softly and we're going to have a time of reflection. Would you just talk to the Lord? Confess your behavior to him and ask him to help you change, to give you that transformation. It might involve some difficult conversations. It might involve uh, some, some new relationships or some changes. But whatever it is, listen to the voice of God this morning as we pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the new creation in Christ. I just pray that we would believe that that we would not try to do this on our own, but we would walk in your power, in your strength, in daily faith and daily dependence on you. Thank you for how you speak to us. Thank you for your unconditional love for us in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you in our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.